0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 331 and my conversation with solo concert percussionist, college professor, principal percussionist with the Columbus Symphony in Ohio, and podcaster and host of Drums and Drams, Cameron Leach. Let's get right to it. This is the final full conversation I am posting about those I interviewed Prior to their presentations at PASIC this year, I should note on my end, I was frankly stunned that nearly everyone I asked to be on the show for PASIC this year actually wanted to do it, and we recorded all of those interviews. So that's why we're here near mid February, and I'm still giving you that content. In any case, I was thrilled to have so many folks to talk to and provide lots of interviews and content for this podcast. And as I mentioned in podcast after PASIC, it was really great to talk to a lot of you there in November. And you can add Cameron Leach to that list. In the lead up to the interview, Cameron mentioned something about how he thought this conversation between us was going to happen at some point, eventually. I had to agree with him. I'd definitely been aware of Cameron for a long time, mostly through his appearances on the At Percussion podcast, which his most recent appearance is referenced during this interview, through his own podcast that he used to have, his social media reach, and through his performances. He'd been suggested by previous guests, and it was time to talk to him. I caught a good deal of his solo concert, Elision, at PASIC. It was both very well attended and quite a feat, as well as being a really good show. I enjoyed the way that he staged all of those works back to back, moving from one set to another and the difficulty of what he performed. At some point after the concert, when we did get a chance to formally meet in person, I commented that he recovered well from that opening body percussion, theatrical percussion work, considering it was so active and just appeared to be exhausting, but... He powered through and continued putting on a solid performance the rest of the way. In addition to chatting about that PASIC performance, we talked a lot about his recent concerns about his and his students' mental health and a lot about his path to getting where he is. We also have a lot of fun through the final segment, including giving him a chance to talk about bourbon. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 23rd, 2022, and it begins right now. So Cameron, tell me what you are doing this year. You're presenting at PASIC. The
1: the title of the program that I'm going to be doing, which is a showcase concert, it's technically billed under the electronics and technology category. Uh, The title is Evolve, and then kind of a subtitle of an electroacoustic percussion show, so people know what it actually is. This was actually a performance that was supposed to be happening last year, um, and and then I ended up postponing it a year. I'll get into that in just a second. But it was supposed to be called Elision, which is this big concept I've been working on for years now of commissioning electronic percussion works and uh, basically everything written for fixed media, so there's no live electronics. And... I this year because of covid because of like my my outlook my mindset shifting a little bit on things I feel like I have I have evolved I feel like we've all kind of evolved and I decided let's rename this show to be something a little more meaningful and it's also programmatic in a way so however much you want to dig into that but the last e and evolve is turned around so it's kind of like a set of repeat signs which has something to do with the show as well so that's what it's going to be. It's going to run continuous for front to back, no applause breaks. So once it starts, it's eight pieces in a row.
0: What's so? What's the range of works that you're playing for this? Originally, when I
1: when I was thinking about this show last year and and years prior, it was the idea was for it to all be my own stuff, all, my own commissions um, from a lot of different composers. And the concept of elision at first was that. You know, the piece is kind of elide, right? You know, like there's just this continuous thing. That's what the title came from. I needed a cool word. Originally, I was going to do a piece for every major percussion instrument. And so I consider that to be marimba vibes, snare drum, drum set, multi, and theater. So, kind of like six main areas is what I was thinking. And this performance actually has eight pieces because um, I've added a few that were not commissioned by me. And those are the two pieces on the outsides of the program, essentially, the repeat signs in the title evolve. Those are not my own pieces, they're both theater pieces and they relate to each other in a way. So the letter E, they're kind of similar in that way, but one of them is like the opposite of the other. So there's a lot of like symbolism in my mind that no one's going to actually understand in the show, and that's totally cool. It's just a way for me in my brain to feel like I'm being artistic. <laughs> but yeah, so it's going to open up with a piece called Control by Joao Pedro Oliveira and this is a body percussion piece. It's actually just acting. There's there's no notes that I play. Uh, no notes that I play except for a couple stick clicks um it's gonna lead into a drum set electronics piece 63 across 81 down um by ansel neely which is a super cool piece very hip original i've got a new nick worth piece called originating within i've got a new session piece that i'm premiering some of these pieces have cuts in them because there's just not enough time at basic to do this so i've kind of crossfaded a few things uh, decay number two by matt Curley. this uh you know the bouncy ball piece that's gonna end the program mm. uh the theater piece and then a new piece by Vera Stanievich called "Broken Mirrors" for snare and electronics. And there's, there's one more in there. Oh, the first movement of Dave Skidmore's um, "I Leave You the Real World" for vibes and electronics. So, it's it's a hope. I mean, it's a lot of dense music on this program, and I'm hoping it comes off well. And I'm in emergency note learning mode right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, like some of these pieces, some of the cuts, if they happen, they might be because I didn't quite get to those parts. <laughs> we'll see. I've been out yeah. of the game. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Over how long have you been commissioning this set of works that you're playing?
1: I think that the earliest commissions back to 2017. So I think this kind of encompasses, I would say four years of commissioning from 17 to 21, I would imagine. Um, I haven't done anything too recently. So yeah, four years and I'm ready to put all the electronic stuff to bed. I really am. And I'm hoping this performance and then maybe a tour afterwards to universities and stuff I can kind of distance myself from it a little bit because there are so many challenges to taking stuff like this on the road. Such as? (laughs) Well, the first one is like having an inconsistent sound tech at every place that you go or no sound tech. As part of what I've been doing now, it's like I'm making universities pay to have somebody or or presenters, I should say, not just universities, uh, because we all know universities probably aren't going to do this, uh, pay for uh, sound tech to come with me. You know, um, whoever they have in the hall needs to be there as well. They know the board, they know the inputs, how the, and everything, but they're going to show my guy when he comes in, just like you would for any other touring show. Um, And, and my guy's going to run whatever's going on there, but that's been a challenge. And that was really set up to happen right before COVID. Like I had, I had gigs booked, people were agreeing to bring my tech on the road with me. So it felt to me a little more legit, like, oh, I've got a, I've got a crew now, you know, I'm responsible for somebody. And when that all fell away, it's like, the the momentum died a little bit. And so I've got to do some gigs to get that street cred again to say, you got to bring my guy, you know? (laughs) So it's a a whole thing, I think. Um, And a lot of places you show up and then what they said they have, they don't have electronically. And it can, because it's so dependent on the electronics, it can really affect the quality of the show um, if it's not
0: happening. So, you know, on that note, is it, and I'll speak to someone who doesn't, who has not done much stuff of anything with electronics. Are there ways you can adjust things to, or are you just completely beholden and with it, with some of these electronics that you're, you're kind of screwed. That's if it's, if it's just not happening.
1: There are some things that I've, I've found like over time, I've evolved from using no mics because at, in the beginning of this, like to be honest with you, I didn't even know how to operate a microphone or like the only thing I knew how to do is plug my interface in with my wireless in-ears and make that all happen. And then I ended up in venues that were big enough to where you needed to be mic'd. And so people would come up and be like, what do you want? Like, what kind of miking do you want? And I'm like, I have no idea. Um, and that was like the first red flag for me of, oh, I gotta go figure this stuff out. So over time I've become more and more, um, you know, involved in that process and every instrument on stage really needs to be mic'd because for me, I want the electronic sound and my sound to come through the same speakers. I don't want, especially if there's speakers overhead in a big hall and then I'm just coming from the stage. It sounds so disjunct. It's horrible. Um, And and even in that situation, I'll have them bring speakers down to the stage and I'll play from lesser speakers and not use the house system because I just want my sound to be directional in that way. Um, You can adjust to some degree. Like if at at PASIC right now, I'm still waiting on a confirmation from the AV team of how many inputs are going to be in room 105 because like... I'm asking for 25 inputs, which is a lot for a, a small conference room. I don't know what kind of board they're going to have. So I can probably get my setup down to like 16 or something, you know, like overhead coverage on things instead of close miking. But at some point the show won't work, you know, especially like, you know, the those those conference rooms in PASIC sound like crap. And sound isn't going to project from me if I'm not mic'd uh, as compared to the speakers. Like I just – I would actually – probably not play my show if there's not enough inputs because it's just not going to, it's not going to work. And we have a one hour sound check to make that happen.
0: Right. Well, and that, if I'm not mistaken, that room is really long, right? Yes. Which is a weird, (laughs) that's That's a problem. It's a weird room. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, like a uh, marimba playing with like Balter blues at the front of the stage. <laughs> and, and then just like big, like, you know, drum and bass beats coming from the speakers. Like there's no, sh- no shot of that working yeah. <laughs> for the people in the back. So I- I'm, I'm honestly the, the whole, the whole performance in my mind is still a little scary and a little up in the air. Cause like, I just, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tell me your decision about not having applause breaks. Is that, is that something you Generally believe in is that something because it fits this kind of mood of a concert. What's how do you see that?
1: Yeah, I I tend to do this on a lot of these electronic things that I do. Sometimes on a, on a performance, I'll do like one half that has all acoustic music. I've done like a split down the middle, and then one half, usually the back half, will just run continuously. So the in the beginning, like you get the applause breaks. Um, I what I don't do unless I'm unless I'm botching a piece, I'll never leave the stage. Once I'm yeah. out on stage, I'm out on stage. And I'm just talking and hanging out with the audience. I don't believe in all this formal recital BS. Like, I, I, I can't stand it. The electronic stuff just generally functions better because if, if, in my mind, if it keeps starting and stopping, I'm like, hang on, and then I press my laptop again, and it's like, <laughs> there's this weird um, logistical nature to it, and I don't want it to feel logistical at all. I just want it to feel good. And, and then also at PASIC, like, you're going to lose a lot of time with applause breaks you know, you're down to a 50 minute timer. I might be a couple minutes over that. We'll see. And you just kind of live with those things, but that was part of it too. And then the other thing is like, I'm not going to have any programs for the show. I don't want this to be about any, anything, but the music that I play and me playing the music. I don't want people to be scanning my program, trying to think about different things. We don't need that. I just want you to hear the music that I'm playing. So I, I may end up putting it somewhere like an exact program or something like that, but also the idea of rustling papers in there, while I'm trying to play it's like no just pay attention or leave the room that's kind of how I feel
0: I wonder if they've been going to it would make sense if there was like a QR code right that people could just and that would be just kind of like all right it's there if you want to find out what I play maybe like an after thing be like here's what I did I don't know it's it seems I I, I do get if you want to be involved in the experience to just not have this, have as few distractions as possible
1: and I'm not, like, some musical, uh, what, what's the word, like, purist, or, like, I'm not some, like, performative purist that says, right. like, we need to be involved in the entire experience. If it was a show that had, like, lighting and um, a lot of stage production stuff, maybe that's different. For me here, part of it is, like, the logistics of of having, like, programs for people. Um, part of it also right now is things might change in the next three weeks of what I play, you know, because I... I have been just kind of too busy to be practicing this program for months leading up to this. And plus I was a really late addition to this PASIC. I wasn't planning on playing this year. So it was a kind of a whole weird thing that happened. So I basically am prepping for like three to four weeks for this and it's, I'm cutting it really close. So (laughs) if I have to yank a piece off the program, I don't want it to be affected anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, Do do you mind saying what what happened? Why you're late? No, sure. I mean, so last year with all the, it was 2021, I think, was the first basic back, right? That would be, yep. Um yep. So I was going to play then. I believe I was originally slated in 2020. And then I think then they told me, like, hey, push it to next year or something because we're going to go virtual. Or maybe they didn't go virtual. I can't remember. Yes. Whatever happened. Last year was approaching. And I remember I was super depressed, you know. Like, everybody was going through it with COVID. And I just called Burra and I said, look, dude, I, I can't play this show. Like, I'm not, I'm not there you know, and he said, that's cool. And he yanked me off of it and everything was good. And then this year I didn't apply because I was still, by the time that was happening in January, I was still not well mentally, you know? And so he calls me, I think in May, maybe June and says like, Hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, because I had just come off a recital. um, My first recital in two years, I felt really good about it. And I was like in this positive mindset but then like, you know, I'm, I'm acting principal in the Columbus Symphony right now. And that job is, it's just taking a lot out of me more than I, more than I would have expected. So it was kind of a bad decision. Like, I'm not trying to put any bad, uh, bad mojo on my Pasic show, but it was kind of a bad decision for me to say yes at that point, because my life is a little crazy right now. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I wish I just didn't do it this year, you know, and I, and I felt better about it, but usually I work under these kinds of situations actually the best. So I don't know.
0: So it's like your the focus like you you're having to extra focus maybe even more than you typically do
1: yeah I do better when there's like an impending deadline and then when that deadline happens instead of saying like here is the amount of work on my plate to achieve that deadline I say I should probably add fifty percent more work in these other things I do in my life <laughs> but then somehow I get it all done
0: yeah. and
1: those are the most productive periods of my life so yeah like with the pasic thing i also decided i'm going to do some crazy uh you know i do this whiskey channel i'm going to i have this crazy content calendar between now and pasic yeah and i just went like 300% more on that <laughs> because i'm like well i'm going to be if i'm working 16 hours a
0: day let's just squeeze this in <laughs> yeah yeah it's, well, it's crazy what we do bad to move <laughs> yeah it's wild it, when you've been working on uh all these commissions are are you uh are you emailing the, the composers after a while like uh why'd you write so many notes do, do, do you ever send those back <laughs> I
1: want to say that to, to Cezanne man I think <laughs> well here's the thing I saw him in Austria uh like in May that was my last gig with Orphic Percussion which was this quartet that I was in and it was a really cool gig out in Austria, and Szezynay was was doing this thing. Also, it, one of his concertos was being played, maybe. And he he sees me and he's like, "Oh, oh!" Because we had never met before, so he he like recognized me, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm the guy that commissioned that piece." And he's like, "Are you gonna play it?" And I was like, <laughs> "Well, yeah, I'm, I think I'm gonna play it at pacing this year." And yeah, at this point, I want to email him and and uh, and ask for some edits, but I'm not gonna do that. Although I might have to cut some of the piece because it's it's like ten minutes of just. Of just notes, and I don't. I mean, I'm at like 54 minutes right now, and yeah. I'd rather ask forgiveness than permission. Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's one of those things. I'm I'm emergency learning his piece because I haven't. That's one of the only ones on the program I haven't played right uh, just yet. So yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, and then you finish and you be
1: like, "What do you mean? I went over? What? <laughs> exactly. It's like, wait a second, dude. It's literally on the computer. We can see the timing. <laughs> like, if someone walks over, they're gonna see the number,
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I, what I'm going to say is like you can leave during the bouncy ball piece if you really want to. Uh, right. I'm trying not to cut up more than like two or three pieces yep. and have them be pieces where you're not going to lose the affect of the whole thing, you know. Right. Um, if I cut the Cezanne, it's a little sad because that's technically the official world premiere. Right. but. I have to think bigger picture on the PASIC show and think about the, the show itself and its success as opposed to one piece because I, I can always do like a really killer video for the Cezanne and that would mean a lot more than him knowing that it got premiered at PASIC. Maybe he didn't even see it because I don't know if he's going to be there. Sure. And people saying, oh, it was really cool. It's like that's all he gets out of knowing it was at PASIC. I mean, he's got enough accolades in his life at this point.
0: Like, Right. You know. Yeah. Gotcha. Cameron, tell me what your percussion – Responsibilities, uh, activities are at this point?
1: I think I, I have uh, four different roles right now. One is kind of my original thought that I always wanted to do, being a percussion soloist. But the only thing on my plate for that at the current time is PASIC and then a couple of smaller things. So I feel a little less involved there. Uh, the second thing I'm doing right now is I'm acting principal with the Columbus Symphony. Uh, that's kind of a new ish thing that's going on. I've played there for five years but never quite in this role until the last two. Uh, third thing is that I'm teaching at Capital University part-time as an adjunct professor. That's my alma mater. And then the fourth thing is that I'm involved in the youth orchestras program with the Columbus Symphony. So kind of doing those four things. And then the, the last thing on the side is like some other content creation that I do.
0: I do want to ask about, because you brought it up, the kind of the mental health aspect, because I, you know, it's like among the things we've been thinking about pre-post-pandemic pandemic I certainly see it. I'm sure you do with the students you work with at, at Capitol. And, um, yeah. and I mean, I know I see it all the time at Mizzou. Uh, what kinds of things have been foremost in your mind regarding that?
1: On the student side of things, you know, the, the people that I primarily teach at Capitol are juniors. And so that class of people are like the freaking poster children for COVID uh, and education and getting into school. So I don't want to get off onto a tangent. In some ways I do think kids are a little, I say this, I say this a little bit in jest, but also kind of seriously, like a lot of students are a little softer these days than when I was in school. Right. And when I say that, that covers a lot of ground that covers a lot of like, they're more in tune with their mental health. That also covers, I think they do need a little bit more of a butt kicking sometimes and they need a little tough love. Um, But I, what I found this semester that I really have to keep in mind is that fact that they basically grew up in college with COVID and on zoom. So I have, a, I have more leeway with these students than I've ever had with students in the past that I've worked with. So I see it with them because you always have those moments in the semester where you, when I was in school or now, when I see kids come in, they come in and they have that look in their eyes, like that forlorn, holy shit, school's <laughs> really hard right now. Look, and you go, are you okay? And then you go, Do you want to have a lesson today? You want to wait till Wednesday, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. But that happened so much this semester to me for a lot of these students that I was like, do do they just not care? And and then I had to really parse that out in my mind. So for them, I'm doing the best I can to kind of play dual roles. I mean, you're always in, in some ways a little bit of a therapist for students as a professor. I've had to sharpen my skills and be even more empathetic. I'm always trying to be more empathetic, but this semester has really taught me a lot about it, but I still want to see them be successful. Yeah. So it's, it's a hard balance of having these conversations of like, you need to start practicing more and also like, let's go get coffee and calm down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So that's for the students, I guess. And personally, mental health, if you want, do you want to talk about some of that stuff. Please, um, if you don't mind. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I've always been an overworker, and and like workaholic and just i've never had any issue working 16 hours every day it's just always been how i've operated and the only thing that's ever pulled me away from that is my wife who she's i don't know how she puts up with me i mean i love her to death and one thing that mark Scatterday, dr Scatterday, which is the band director or the the wind ensemble conductor at eastman he always said you hang on to her you know she's she's there for you right now and we were doing long distance she's there for you right now. And one day you're going to have to be there for her. And I always keep that in mind of like, when's she going to cash in her, uh, her, I need to be there for her coupon. And she just did it. She just had a surgery, which I was like the caretaker. And I was like, I I've gotta, I've gotta live up to the expectation of, of (laughs) Dr. Scatterday and how she's always been there for me and everything. But she's the person that was like, look, you need to dial things back. You know, it's, it's hurting you, but it's also hurting us because I was just never home. I was on the road all the time. And COVID really jacked it up because I was I was on the cusp and I I, I don't wanna sound um, I don't wanna sound any kind of way. I was on the cusp of what I consider to be like a really good career. Like right before COVID, I was talking to managers, I was booking really nice gigs with with orchestras and different things, and all of it came crashing
0: down. Well it was the and culmination I, of I mean, if you're you being a solo percussionist, that was like that was like it. Like you had You had gotten to where you were, you were trying to get, right?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I was on the way, like the whole time you you see yourself and and you're always putting yourself in context of your peers. And then also the people way above you, the Collins, the Martins, the Christophs, you know, and then when you start seeing yourself getting closer to those people, than some of the people that you went to school with or, you know, whatever else, because they might be going different directions. A lot of people that say they want to do the solo thing, they fall off quickly and rightfully so, because it's, it's horrifying. I mean, it's really hard, and frankly, you either need to have some financial support somewhere else, or you need to have some other things figured out because you're not making a lot of money up front. You know, thank God for Sarah, right? Like she was there in the rough times—some good month, bad month, whatever. Yeah, the COVID thing kind of decimated my mental health, and I didn't understand what it was doing to me until much later. Like even in the moment, I—I I felt burnt out, and I was having issues. But like right now, dude, I have like ticks. I have—I literally have ticks that I. Like, if I get really anxious and I have a thought go through my head, I will like have a twitch and say mm. something. I mean, like, I've had this GI issue for um, basically two years now. Yeah. And I've been going to the doctor in the ER. I've got every scan under the sun, uh, all these things manifesting in my body. And after this basic show, I'm just, I'm not booking another solo gig till till I can get my body figured out because I, I, I didn't understand the power of, um, bad mental health on physical health too. That's, that's when it stopped me the most. Like I'm okay with feeling bad up here. And then when it started affecting me here, I was like, this has got to get changed.
0: Was the, the you, you mentioned the kind of the, the, the tick thing, but w- were there other ways that it was starting to show? Was it just because this, you know, you, like you said, your the GI issue was like, where does this come from? Why is this bothering me?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I knew like, that started in November of tw- of 2020. And I knew that, uh, I was in rough shape at that point mentally anyways. Uh, and I, at that point I had stopped doing like all the virtual stuff. Like I, I, I quit music except for the orchestra because I said, I can't, um, sustain doing this. You know, I need to go find something else to do. The GI thing popped up, but at first it wasn't like an obvious GI issue. It was like, it was excruciating pain here. It was numbness in my left arm and my left, uh, uh, leg. It was all, all of these kind of strange issues. At that point, I didn't know what was going on. So I was going to the ER thinking like, holy shit, do I have like an issue with my pancreas or, or this or that? And they did every scan and they're like, we just can't figure this out. Uh, it might be stress. And I was like, what are you talking about? It might be stress. Like, I didn't know you could, your body could be affected by stress. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, like I've been stressed to the nth degree my whole life and I've never had anything like this happen. Yeah. Um, and now that I'm very convinced that and you're like, don't you stress. work twenty twenty
0: two and a half 22 and a half hours a day? Or is that just me? <laughs>
1: well, they probably do. Honestly, the yeah, doctors, right? Yeah. Right. But so they probably know best, <laughs> but every time they said that I would, I would get pissed. I was kind of like, what are you, what are you saying to me? And they're like, we should put you on some anxiety medicine. I'm like, no, I, I like, I, I'm fine, you know? And still, I, I I'm not on any kind of like medicine for any of that stuff because I do I do really believe in, like, being able to fix these things naturally. I do I do think that medicine definitely has a time and a place, of course, and you got to use it properly, and you got to go through so many trials and errors. I don't want to go through that, you know? I just want to fix this myself. Um, I'm a little stubborn in that way. But part of fixing that is going to mean, like, opening my schedule. And and I've already done this before, but I didn't realize I wasn't doing it the right way. So, <laughs> At the end of the day, your health matters the most. Uh, What do they say? Your health health is wealth or something like that? I don't know. But at the end of the day, I could quit every job or every engagement in my life and and not care about it as long as I can get healthy and be with my wife. You know what I mean? Like, those are the things that matter to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, To be able to to have an enjoyable life, uh, those are the two things that matter. And like family and stuff like that. But I've got to get my health together and that might mean giving up some good opportunities here in the future. I have no idea, but it's, it's just got to happen.
0: Thank you for for talking about that. And I, um, one of the things I think is really important is also why it matters to have that. Even if you think that you have, um, if someone has like a full-time career, how important it is to, to have other portfolio style things. So that if one thing, like if you let this, you know, this part drop off, you still have other things going on that can both are financially and are making you happy. Yeah. I think,
1: I think maybe not everybody's cut out to do that. Like not everybody is cut out to be a, have that freelance lifestyle, even on the side.
0: Yeah.
1: uh, Maybe. I mean, I, I, it's so hard to generalize, but I think, I think more people should try it though. You know, you mm-hmm. see like people that have jobs, uh, and I say like a regular job, you know, mm-hmm. some some sort of scheduled job, and they might have like an Etsy on the side, or they might mm-hmm. do this or that. And and I do think we need a little bit more of that. It may not be for everybody, but I, I think you're right that it is. Um, it's a little more mentally, I don't know, it I don't, it's not stable, but it's like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you you have the oppor- opportunity or the option to think. About yourself more broadly and to do other things if something doesn't work out yeah yeah, yeah. i we, don't know
0: it's weird it's it's interesting to talk we that we have some friends locally who are, who are like there's insurance is a big part of columbia mm-hmm. um the state farm and shelter and other, other places and it's interesting like you you hear about their jobs are very much eight to five but but and then you're like oh that would kind of a drag and then there are times where like wait so at five like you don't have to answer email, you don't have to like. I was like, that sounds amazing. Actually, <laughs> I know it's like the, you go
1: through the phases. I mean, you always want what you don't have, and that's the right. really hard part about it. Yeah, the grass is always greener.
0: <laughs> right, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got you. Sorry, you've already ex- explained this, but um, did you grow up like in Columbus, like the city? No. So I, I actually. I grew up the
1: first five years of my life on in, in a place called Meigs County, Ohio, which is like right on the Ohio River. It's a town called uh, Middleport. So very small town. I'm not going to say I'm some country boy, you know, but uh, my family certainly has some of that in in it. And uh, I still feel some connection to that, you know, growing up in a. You know, in a, like a double wide trailer kind of thing. Uh, even though I was really little at the time, and then I moved to Columbus. I was here until I uh, went to grad school at Eastman because I capitals in Columbus. So,
0: gotcha. Do you have family members in the arts? Kind of
1: like my. So my dad was a guitar player growing up, and y- you know he, he's got like a regular like job kind mm-hmm. of thing, uh, but he's always played in bands, and 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 I think that's really where I got into music. But then I had. F- family members growing up in that, in that small town that were in the marching band I played saxophone, played trombone, um, you know, color guard, all this stuff. And I grew up with the marching band. And so I wanted to originally play sax. Cause my, my cousin Tyler was like my, my idol, you know, fast forward. I switched to percussion, blah, blah, blah. Tyler actually moved out to first. He got involved in the armed forces. He did his time there, got out. And now he's in film school in California. And he's one of the only other people in my family that have kind of gone to school for something in the arts. So I guess like in some ways he was my inspiration as a kid. And what I really love about it is that he's continued into the arts as an adult as well. So like we're the two in the family, he's in film, I'm in music. Um, And then the rest of them were just kind of in marching band and did stuff like that. So they're appreciators, but they're not really professionally involved. So when does the percussion bug officially hit you aside from the music bug? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was, I think it was sixth grade was when it hit me. And then, I didn't start in school until I believe it was like halfway through my seventh grade year. So I, I had done saxophone since fifth grade, so maybe like two and a half years of sax, but my dad had a, had a recording studio in our basement growing up. Um, so his, his buddy left a drum set over at our house and I'll never, ever forget this. It was a, uh, one of those old Zildjian rides and it had like a giant bell on it. I can't remember yeah. the, I know what you're talking about that. Yeah. You're not know talking about It's yeah. like a mega mega bell or I don't know what the symbol's called. And I remember being upstairs and they were recording something in the basement. And he was playing on that bell. And I remember hearing that and I just was like, what is that sound? And and I went down and he showed it to me. And, and I was like, that's so crazy. Like I didn't know. I, I don't know. It was just this weird thing as a sixth grader. And then he let me sit down on the kit and he taught me a beat. And I started playing this beat. and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this, you know. And so I grew up with this kid who bullied me in elementary school. <laughs> Uh, on the back of the bus, he would like beat me up and take my gum and like, all you know, my big red gum he would take. And that, and he was a skater and all this kind of stuff. He ended up, we reconnected like that year when I was in sixth grade, he was in seventh grade. He came over, he was a guitar player. And so we started recording punk music in my basement with my dad. It took me another year and a half in school to actually officially switch over. But I had been playing drums for a while at that point, drum set. And then School got me. I I missed all my bell kit stuff from fifth and sixth grade, so I had no mallet experience until I got to college, basically. Um, But I was just a drummer, you know? What kind of punk stuff, like whose type of music were you playing? Well, I mean, when I was – when I say we were playing punk, I mean, it's kind of loose because we were just like, dude, gas, dude, gas, dude, gas, these kind of beats, you know? And he was just playing guitar riffs. But, I I mean, at the time, I was listening to like – you know, it's not the Ramones, but I was listening to green day. You know, I wasn't like a misfits kid or anything like that, but I was listening to green day. I was listening to Avenged seven was listening to Slipknot. actually like I kind of had a wide variety of stuff. I grew up on eighties hair metal and country from my parents. So then I kind of <laughs> rebelled against that. Right. Right. And, and yeah, by the time I was 13, I was playing, like I was playing in bands around town. Like I was playing with kids that were in high school and college And I was like the 13-year-old drummer. There's still videos on YouTube of like them on stage saying, our drummer's 13, you know? And I'll never share those videos. Well, maybe I will one day, but. (laughs) But I mean, it was crazy. Like there's a place in in Columbus called the Newport Music Hall, which is like a kind of an historic venue. And it's like I played there when I was 13 and I had no idea what I was doing. I was just, these kids are booking these gigs and my dad was taking me there with my drum set and sound checking. (laughs) Oh, good times.
0: Yeah, yeah. The few the various years in the two thousands when PASIC was in Columbus, were you mm. were you in town for those?
1: No, and I, I wouldn't have even known what PASIC was oh. you know at the <laughs> yeah. time. Like I don't I don't think the first time I went to PASIC, I believe was twenty uh, twenty eleven because I was in Rhythm X that year. And mm. I remember Rhythm X saying, Hey, we had a PASIC clinic that we were doing, and it was at the very beginning of the season. So it's was like, we we basically finished auditions and they're like, we have to go play PASIC. And it's like, with what? You know, like we, so we played like our exercise packet with some body exercises. And I was in high school at the time. And I remember just being at PASIC, like, what is this place? But I think once we played at PASIC, we then had to probably go rehearse the rest of the weekend. So I didn't get a chance to really see it until I went in 2012, my first year at Capitol.
0: Mm. Gotcha. So,
1: yeah. Well,
0: it's, because I, I was thinking, I was like, that would have been a formative time. Cause it was there three times in the two thousands. Right. And, and it was, it was cool. Like I actually, I mean, it was cold. It was very cold, but I kind of liked it in Columbus. Like it was, it's, it's, it, there was more to do. I was kind of surprised. Mm. Uh, there was more to do there when, when it was there. I think that's that
1: like right now, because the way the city's developing, there would be a lot to do now. Like actually it would be a great place to, to have it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm so used to Indy now. Indy's like this this hallowed ground in a funny way, <laughs> Right. you know. Even though it's it's just a fine city, but yeah. it, it, uh you know, you go there and you know what you're you know where you're gonna eat. You're gonna go to Weber. You're gonna get a freaking prime rib, you know, and like <laughs> the whole bit. Yeah, yeah. Or the shrimp cocktail. What's that place? Saint Elmo's. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. With a crazy shrimp cocktail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. So you were in band. Mm-hmm. in high school so was that a kind of a a standard concert band marching band experience or was what was kind of going on there
1: yeah pretty standard um big marching band town I, I mean as big as it could be obviously Texas and California yeah. they do their own things but at that time actually I would say that those those markets hadn't developed to the point that they are today even back it was like when I was starting high school it was the 2008 season like fall season. So at the time, like our drum line at my school, which was Hilliard Darby high school uh, for indoor, for instance, over the last three years before that had placed fifth, seventh and eighth at world finals, like in the highest class for indoor drum line. So it was definitely like a really solid program. The marching band was not quite up to the drum lines level, but that that's okay. We weren't like a BOA band or anything like that. But because of the instructor that I had, John Merritt, who's now down in Texas, um, he was the center snare for the cadets in 93. So I kind of had this drum core thing beat into me from, from a very early age. So I always knew that I wanted to do it. And I always knew that blue devils was the goal. Um, and then rhythm X was in town. Like I grew up kind of watching matrix indoor because there was a connection from our school to matrix, but I ended up in rhythm X ended up uh, doing blue devils. And I was a, I was a quad drummer. So that was kind of like my, the only thing I really gave a crap about was playing drum set in metal bands locally at the time. And, Playing drum corps stuff, yeah. And then I just decided to go into music ed because it was either going to be a math degree, Spanish degree, or something to do with music. And I was like, "Well, I'm good at music, so let's just do that." Wait, why was why Spanish in school? I had I I was I was always a good student. I would say that like and math. I'm I'm a very analytical person. I was really good at math, so I just thought like, okay, there's a skill set. Music, I knew there's a skill set. But then Spanish was this thing that I just I really enjoyed it like. I skipped, uh, I skipped a year or two of Spanish. So I maxed out my Spanish in school by my junior year, Mm. which was like the worst thing that could have happened to me because my senior year, I wasn't able to take anything. And so it just kind of fell apart, but like, Mm. I wouldn't say that I was fluent, but I was getting very close by the time I was a junior in high school. And I was in a class with all, um, native speakers. It was me, another white dude, and then like five native Spanish speakers from Colombia, Chile, Mexico, you know all these places, and um, it was great. I loved it, and I can still like if I was in a Spanish-speaking country, I could probably get by. I could definitely read everything. I just my speaking has gone out the window. Yeah, so it,
0: it's so hard. It, it's hard to keep that up if you're not doing it <sighs> I
1: miss it. I, I yeah. that is like one of my um, bucket list things in my life is I want to learn. I just want to learn languages in my spare time. But I just yeah. have never had that time, you know. So I want, right. I want to settle my life down a little bit.
0: <laughs> oh, that would be it. You do, um, you do drums and drams, but in like ten different <laughs> languages. That's drums and drams, Espanol. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be hilarious. Yeah, and you get this is when you like if you just really put it to work and you and you pick like you you definitely have to do a, a Nordic language because those are really hard. Oh, And then wow. like yeah, you, yeah, and then like Japanese. And, and you just like you just pick like the most obscure, maybe something from like a um a South American like uh dialect just to just to throw it just to, for like five views only, you know, all that stuff. Well, what's crazy that you
1: say that you said Japanese. This is something that's that's wild. I would have never expected. My sister, I have a little sister, uh seven years younger than me. She went to Kent State. Ironically, I, I taught a semester there, then she ended up going to Kent State, which I thought was kind of cool. She was in the fashion program, which is a really like highly lauded fashion program well she dropped out and she's studying japanese like at and so she's got to study abroad next semester in tokyo which is so cool um but i would have never like we come from this family where like our you know not no sob stories but like our home life was not super great this whole Mm -hmm. kind of bit and uh that's that's where a lot of my problems come from you know Mm -hmm. and for her too so we both found ourselves in artistic endeavors which is interesting, you know, like you have the, I think a lot happens with a lot of people that have, you know, kind of not so great family lives growing up and mom and dad, if you're listening to this, sorry, we can kind of all agree on that, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, she's like doing Japanese and I'm doing music and it's just kind of crazy, but yeah, Japanese sound, sounds really freaking hard. Yeah, I can't even, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree on that. How long did you do drum corps stuff? So I only did, a full season one one time. This this was like the big regret of my life was I joined Bluecoats first actually in 2013 and I had all these um, health issues uh, when I was there. I, I had an issue with something with the carriers. They were using those Randall May harnesses. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm pretty short. I'm like five foot seven. And those harnesses just p- were too low on me. And so they were causing a lot of issues uh, for me.
0: And for also the- Primarily? Well- let's just say okay, the, nether, the region,
1: the nether region. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. You the, know,
0: the lower stomach, upper thigh region, maybe. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and I already kind of had something going on there. Like a, like a, what do you call that? Like a hereditary kind of thing, right? It's not a big deal, but, but this really made things a lot worse. Yeah. And to, to make that, to make matters worse on that end, like the standard step size that summer at blue coats was six to five. And I'm, I'm just a short quad drummer. It's having a hard time keeping up. No kidding. And I mean, heck, like I had marched with the max, like I know, I knew what high level playing and marching was, but this pushed me to a new level. And so anyways, my back locked up and I was on like muscle relaxers. I had to come home from move-ins for a few days. And eventually I just like, I, I was with Tim Jackson who was teaching there at the time. And he was like, you should probably not, you should probably be done. And I was like, yeah, I should probably be done. So I just, I just went home. And, uh, that, that next year, one of the guys I marched with in blue coats, I remember we were walking back from a block at one point and we looked at each other and we were both like, I mean, we were having fun, but truthfully, the Bluecoats experience at that time was not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, it was kind of build as something different. It was billed a little more relaxed and Rhythm X was definitely more relaxed. We looked at each other and I was like, do you want to go to Blue Devils next year? And he was like, yeah. So we both were like, let's, let's go audition next year. So we both went to Devils and we both made it at Devils the next year, which was really cool. Um, and then I did a full summer with devs and I had two more years left but each year Michael Burrett told me Michael Burrett he told me to quit <laughs> but because I was a student at CAP and he said like if you want to get into school here at Eastman I was going up taking lessons with him I had no business taking lessons with him I was not at this level yet he's like you got to do everything I say rule number one quit <laughs> quit Blue Devils and w- tour started two months from then or, or move eds. so it was like m- March so I called Scott and I quit and I had to do that the next year too Burt. I went back, I re-earned my spot for the, my age out summer and where said, no, you need to go do this, this orchestral festival instead. And that one really hurt that, like, I really wish I could have marched my age out, but it mm. is what
0: it is. Was it just like, you need other experiences is that mm. why?
1: Yeah. The first, the first time was like, Cameron, you know, you're up here, you have a lot of potential, you're a great drummer and your mallet stuff needs work and just your exposure to, to just th- this music stuff. So you need to go do the Stevens camp and do at the time Chosen Veil vale was still around. So he said, You need to go do these two things. I'm gonna be at both of them and I need to see you there. It's like, okay. So I, I did both of them. And then the worst part of it was like when I when I met him at the Stevens camp again, he he like didn't know who I was. And I was I remember I was so hurt because it was like, Holy shit, man, I just I quit Blue Devils and then you don't know who I am. Right, you know? Right. Um, but that's the guy's inundated with people asking for his time. And yeah. so I, eventually, like we got to know each other really well. I did the All Star uh, Percussion Ensemble in San Antonio in, that November, so I had a lot of touch points with Burt that year. Then I started studying with him every three weeks. I would drive up, and then my audition happened. And then when I got into school, I said, "Hey, I'm going to do Devs again." He said, "Cool." And mm-hmm. then all at once, he was like, "Actually, you need to go to Chautauqua, and because you have never played an orchestra before, and you need to have this experience." Yeah, that's that's one of my biggest regrets, only because. I felt like a quitter like Mm. that was the biggest thing for me personally was like I made this commitment to blue devils I came back and they said do you really want to be here you have to earn your spot back I said yes I earned my spot back I auditioned and then I quit again and um yeah that's that's been a that has haunted me for a long time because when I have issues come up of like mental health stuff during COVID I canceled some things because I was in a really bad place and it just brought that back of like you're a quitter you're a quitter Mm. Instead of like you're taking care of yourself, you know, right. um, and even, even now, when I look at the Pasic show, which I, yeah. I do want to play, I wish yeah, I could yeah, bump it. A, I wish I could bump it, but I look at that and I go like, "Is my desire to move this show to if I could, does that come from a place of being a quitter?"
0: That, I I'm really haunted by that man. Interesting. Wow. Well, it's it, you know you you can kind of see that you're you're thinking a lot about. You know, your own my kind of mental health priorities and probably what would I, I assume is some of it is maybe perfectionism, too. Right. Like, yeah, you want you want this show to be amazing because it's basic and it's this big showcase. Um And also knowing like what you need to do to, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like you have all the factors. Yeah, no,
1: no, you're 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 spot on. I, I don't know. It's just something, yeah, something I'm wrestling with a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like we kind of talked about earlier is, is everything is pretty darn inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Like if I fell off the face of the earth right now, and I never touched another musical instrument again, some people might be like, oh, that's a shame, you know, for a couple months. And right. then after that, it's like, no one cares because life continues to move on and everybody does their own things. Yeah. Um, yeah so at the end of the day, I am trying to prioritize my, my mental health to the point that it doesn't affect other people negatively. Um, and that's, that's where that line gets drawn of like, uh, you know, can I, can I get away with doing this or not? Um, that's tough. Yeah.
0: I mean, I would, the one thing, you know, when you're, when you're going into a lot about the, the, um, the drum corps stuff though, is that like there is there is a actually a good reason why why you you didn't do those seasons. Right. It's not like you didn't it wasn't because you decided not to do it. It was like this was actually professional advice mm-hmm. for my future.
1: That's true. But I also think um my my biggest issue obviously is that I already made the commitment. It was like right. like I had auditioned and been in the group, just we hadn't done move-ins yet for like three or four months each year. Yeah. But my bigger issue with it is the, like did that train me? (laughs) This is, this is a, I need to go see a therapist, right? This is like the, the the bigger question of, did this train me to be okay with quitting? And, and in the way of like, at that time in my life, I was really, what's the word? Like, I felt like my integrity as a person and as a, someone that made commitments, like was unbreakable. Uh, Mm. And that was drilled into me from this guy in high school that taught me, John Merritt, uh, and kind of this hard ass drum corps thing, yeah. early nineties drum corps thing. And so mm-hmm. I would have never given up a commitment like that. And, and then when this happened, I was like, oh, you mean the world kept spinning and I just quit the greatest drum line that I've always dreamed of being in since I was a little kid? Like, yeah. oh, I guess I can quit anything now. Is is that the reason that sometimes I, I bail on things? It's not, but the problem nice. is for me, I just overcommit myself and then you end up having to quit something or else you will not achieve any
0: of them you know right um well, and and as you kind of <laughs> as we we kind of you already talked about you, it's going to manifest itself in some way yeah the stress will and you know the deal, you know like it's like yeah. <laughs> you know what the deal is when that happens <laughs> uh-huh the biggest
1: thing you can do sometimes i see these videos on instagram these random these random videos there's there's one recently I don't know his name. I just saw him the other day. My wife showed me the the guy that broke that marathon record, you know what I mean? Who who ran the marathon in like, was it was like an hour and 51, something insane. Yeah. Uh, and he had a video up there of him saying something about like the three things you need to do. And basically the, the, the MO of all of, of what he's saying, what a lot of people say is you got to protect your time. You got to learn to say no. And yeah. that is my biggest problem um, because the, the deadly combination is being not only a perfectionist, but being a yes man. And because when you say yes, then everything you do after that has to be perfect, and if you don't achieve it, i mean my god it's it's just uh it wreaks havoc on your mind, i think yeah so yeah, yeah. i i'm I'm trying to because I know that I can't fix my perfectionism, I'm trying to then just do less things because everything I do I know has to be up to a certain level,
0: yeah yeah, and it, it's a as you're you're as you know it's it's a process it's like you're not you're not going to figure out the balance <laughs> right. right off the bat
1: yeah and and when you think you have it figured out think again <laughs> oh, yeah. like I, I remember i got like into the middle of 2021 you know covid had been around for a while i was like i got this shit figured out yeah. come on like i'm in a better place now and then something smacks you across the face and you're like oh no <laughs> every yeah. time
0: the world yeah. is the world will always teach you a lesson <laughs> yeah no oh my gosh yeah I went. I was thinking that one of the classes I was teaching, which is a career development class mm-hmm. um, at Mizzou, I I had it in my head like I think I'm going to try to have class Friday, uh, even though I had planned because it was homecoming week, and I was like mm-hmm. I, in my head I'm like they have they've done a lot of work they had an assignment due I was like it was going to be kind of like something I was going to lead all the stuff, and then I looked at my schedule on like third sometime Thursday the day before, and I'm like. There's no way. I have no brain power left to to present yeah. anything and I was just like take the day off. It's we're we you you are all great. <laughs> You've done a lot. I need I was like I need <laughs> to not actually do this cuz I will be insane. Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think also what's interesting too is um one thing I've one thing I've been thinking about with now teaching at a university again is that the students actually understand that stuff. Like because who's more stressed than the students? I mean, yes, the professors are certainly stressed, but when when you're like – when you show a little, I don't know, vulnerability to your students, that's yeah. really important. And sometimes you can be selectively vulnerable with your students, you know what I mean, if you if you need to get to a certain thing. But, but truthfully, like being – I think showing some vulnerability is important. And uh, I don't know. I never really had that, I guess, with a lot of my professors growing up. It was very, very much – you know, down the middle and by the book. So,
0: yeah, let's get to a couple of them. So you get, you go to Capital. you said undergrad mm-hmm. and that's with Bob. Yeah. So what was, tell me a little bit about
1: that experience. Yeah. The, um, so I was a music ed major at cap and the, the idea of going to cap was just, it was because people from my high school had gone there and studied music. So I didn't, like I didn't have anybody in my family that had gone to college really. So I didn't know the whole idea of like, you should visit a campus and do all this and apply to a lot of places. So I only applied to capital. I was like, I hope I get in because and I didn't understand like the consequence of if I didn't get in, that I was not going to be in college. <laughs> yeah. um, so I went and I, I auditioned for Bob and he like made me feel like an idiot. Like I love Bobby, but, but like I was trying to read a mallet thing it was one of the Peter's etudes out of the Peter's book. And I had just never played mallets. So the first thing that it opens up with was an F arpeggio, and I just couldn't play it. Um, and he was just like, stop. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, this kind of thing. <laughs> but I played drums for him. I played some drum set, and he was like, oh, this, you know, you, you've got good hands and everything. So I'm glad he took a chance on me. But Bob took a sabbatical. I want to say it was the second semester I was in school and Ryan Kilgore came in and Ryan Kilgore is a, a now a good friend of mine. He did his undergrad at Rutgers with She'i, his master's at Northwestern with Burritt, And then he did his DMA at North Texas. He came in, he was originally from Ohio, moving back from Texas to take the sabbatical replacement. And he was like a mallet guy. And he's the one who got me into music in the way that I am now. Um, not that Bob didn't, but when you're a freshman and really a sophomore at cap, you don't get a lot of of attention from Bob in the sense that like you you feel like Bob is there to remediate you on the things that like you're not good at you know like and especially drum set because he's a drum set guy by the time you get to your junior year Bob is really investing in you he does this thing called junior percussion class where he makes you do a lot of business stuff like plan a plan b business plan this kind of stuff and that's really important, but you don't get to see that your first two years. So I had Ryan Kilgore really taking me through like mallets and everything. And that was what kind of got me into playing the way that I, that I do. And then I had a bad breakup in, in college, which is hilarious, with my now wife. We we, <laughs> we broke up, and it like crushed my soul. Of course. And that's when Bob went to Burritt and said, I've got a guy for you. He, I need him to come up and take a lesson. And Bob like saw this happen to me and gave me something to get my mind off of it, which was to go see Burrett. And it changed my life. So he knew exactly kind of where to push and, and everything. And Ryan Kilgore was like my confidant and my, my teacher and this guy that understood process teaching so well. Um, so how was well, my and, time. Mechanic. And
0: which, to,
1: which to you means what the process teaching in my mind, his, his specialty is that he, he's so heavily involved in the drum corps activity. So as a, as a teacher, he understands like beginning with the end in mind and he understands how to get you from point A to B over the course of a long period of time and, and how each of those increments should go. Whereas a guy like, like Michael Burritt is more of like an, I would consider to be like an artistic teacher. Like he's, he's like, you know, and he's like playing for you and he's like, just do this, you know? And it's, it's much more of, uh, like abstract and you're putting the pieces together in your mind, whereas Ryan can spell things out. And at the time... I always talk about these as two different languages. Like the artistic side is Spanish. The other side is English. You got to be able to speak in Spanglish uh, for your students. And so when I when I had Ryan, I was still in the drum corps phase of my life. I was still marching Rhythm X when I was at Capitol and Blue Devil. So I needed someone to speak to me in those terms. If if I would have gotten a lesson from Michael Burr my sophomore year at Capitol, I would have been like, what are you saying to me, dude? I would have been really turned off by it because – I always thought of music as technique and rhythm and not as anything else, no artistry involved. So Ryan was there for a crucial period for me and helped me transition into like, not that Ryan can't teach artistically. Sure. It's just like his specialty to me was always like, he can really relate to me. He can really relay information in a way that I get. And then when I went to, um, I needed full immersion. So when I went to chosen Vale and I saw 40 other people there playing solo pieces like I played tantrum on snare drum. It was my, my specialty playing chops. Mm-hmm. I saw guys playing like Lansky three moves, uh, reflections on the nature of water, like all these pieces. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know this existed. And yeah. it broke me. I, I mean, broke you. It brought the, the wrong thing happened. It, 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 it was like, oh, oh my God. You know? And I felt so inferior. I oh, felt sure. like I was one of the people there that knew the least about any of this contemporary music or whatever. Um, So I went back to Capitol after that with like this renewed thing in my mind. And then I did the all-star ensemble with Burrett and I started getting a little more of his teaching in me. And it was this perfect marriage of things that kind of brought me from one part of my life to the other. And now when I teach, I feel like I can speak both of those languages a little more efficiently now. Like some, some lessons with kids, I'm just singing and yelling and I'm like this. And then others, I'm like, we need to move your left thumb. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I do feel more confident in my teaching because of that. Um, but wow, what a It's so cool to look back on these things, right? And and in the moment, you just don't you don't appreciate kind of the phases that your life goes through, I think. And I'm saying this as a 28-year-old, so I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty plenty more to go, but yeah. That's
0: Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting cuz you know, I'm glad that you said that the, that the chosen veil thing kind of renewed because y- I could totally see how that would just, I get how you'd be like, I'm, why am I here? Yeah. But because you are, it seems like you're really curious and interested um, that when you came back, you're like, okay, like, here's some pieces. I'm like, I'm super interested, but I need to get there. Like, mm. th- th- that, is that kind of what happens? I think so.
1: Yeah. Like there's so much coming at you at chosen Vale for a guy that had no idea of what contemporary percussion music was that like, you can't even you don't know what you don't know. You can't understand what you don't you, you know. It, it was just like this thing of this overwhelming sense of I'm missing something here. <laughs> and and I need to go back to Capitol and figure this stuff out. And that was when I started taking music seriously. Like up to that point, I had played very few serious pieces. I was like, I'm gonna be a band director, this and that. That completely paradigm shift. And then uh all the stuff with Burr, and then Colin Curry came and did a residency at Capitol, like everything that happened was just, it was this rapid fire thing that, um, it broke my brain in the best way. And then when you, when your brain does get broken, you can either leave it broken or you can try to go figure out what happened and how to put the pieces back together. And I think that's the only, the only way that I was going to be able to do what I'm doing now is to have somebody fundamentally just rock
0: my world. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's great. So you get these experiences with Burrett and are you just like, like, once you start interacting with him, are you, are you like, I'm going to study with you officially once I'm done here? Or? Yeah, this is something I
1: talk about with my students too. I just had a, a guy audition for Rhythm Max. We were just talking about the audition process. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, if you're going to audition for a group like this, you have to, you have to know that you are going to win. You, you, you right. absolutely cannot accept that you will not win this audition and that's the only way that you're going to win, you know, and it might feel cocky or whatever, but you have to be in this mindset. So for for the Eastman thing, it was like a one and a half year lead up to it where I was like you're going to you're going to go to school here. You have to go to school here. I think the first time I stepped foot in Eastman and I saw the fact that it looked like Hogwarts to me. I was like <laughs> I have to be here, you know. <laughs> and then I took a lesson with Burrett and I'll never forget I was playing Burrett variations and he showed me something that he, he did something with like some two-part stuff on the, in that piece. And he was like, check this out, man. Just uh, rhythmically phrase your left hand like this. And he played something. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe you can do that, you know? It was just obvious. And so then I auditioned. And he came out and talked to my dad. And I, he's, I think he's denied that this happened. No, 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 no. This happened. He came out and talked to my dad. And he was like, yeah, that was a little rough. And he was like, I don't I don't know how this is going to go. Like, I don't know if he's going to get in. Like, he came out and said that to me and my dad. And I was like, oh, shit, you know? And I, I mean, I was convinced that I didn't get in. Yeah. And I went and I auditioned at Yale and Juilliard, which is hilarious. These schools, what's so funny is, like, I was this kid that knew nothing. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I still feel like a home homeboy, you know, country yeah. bumpkin kind of guy. And I... I am at Juilliard, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> this is this is the school that I've heard about for decades in my life when people talk about the prestigiousness of New York City and and I just shit the bed in that audition. <laughs> like I mean, they they put some sight reading in front of me because I'm notoriously like not a great sight reader of certain things, you know? And they put the snare drum sight reading and I literally didn't miss a note. And then they put the the mallet stuff and it was this Bach thing. I was just chowing it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, as I'm playing, I'm like, cut, you're cut. This isn't going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> um, and Yale, actually the Yale audition went pretty well. It was just, that's a really tough audition when the students are sitting in on it and, and everything like that. Um, there was only one moment that I feel like I really didn't do so well in. But again, like the, Vance Ice is probably looking for a little different level of something going on up here that I didn't have at the time. Uh, and I'm so glad I didn't get in there because I would I would have gone and I'd, it wouldn't have been the best thing for me. I can I know that now. And then the other one was James Madison. I auditioned for Casey, and uh, the indecision end ended up being a full ride plus stipend at JMU, or paying thirty five k a year to go to Eastman. And that was a very hard decision to make. It was a yeah. lot closer of a call than some might believe. You know, now ha- having having gone there, I was very much on the verge of going to JMU, mm. just because of the money. So, yeah. Yeah, man, that's the, that's kind of the story, I guess. But
0: when you are finally at Eastman, you've kind of talked about their, their differences as, as professors, but, but like in terms of the studio experience mm-hmm. and the fact that you're at a place that's filled with the, you know, the hottest pianists, violinists, singer, like you're among the best of, of, of the crop, basically. What, what's that experience like? You know, it is,
1: it's simultaneously intimidating, but also inspiring, I think. One thing that my, my choir director from high school, who I remain good friends with now, and I, I still play some, some gigs with him, he always said, he always said, Cameron, you know, you need to go somewhere and be a little fish in a big pond. Because at Capitol, even when I went to Capitol, I wasn't a... I wouldn't say I was a big fish in a little pond. Like I, I went in there and I couldn't read music really. I mean, I had played sax, but I couldn't put it into practice on mallets and I didn't start taking it seriously till halfway through. So, but what what I noticed at Capitol was that when I when I put my heart and soul into it and all the hours that were needed, which is really the big problem, I wasn't practicing, that like immediately the results started showing. I started getting recognized at school for for the achievements that I was making And I was like, oh, okay. So when I went to Eastman, it was like hitting the reset button. It's like, oh my God, this is so insane here. And then you listen to the orchestra play and you sit in on somebody's recital and you're like, I cannot believe
0: I am here. Right, right.
1: And the same thing-
0: This freshman's walked in, they're playing Merlin. (laughs) You're like, what what am I supposed to do? That's it. That's (laughs) it. Like You see these freshmen
1: playing these Marimba solos and you're like, oh boy, I am in for it. It was the same thing, though. I, I went in there with the mindset of, like, you might leave this school with nobody knowing who you are. And and none, none of this is about recognition or people knowing who you are. I want to be clear about that. But in my mind, I thought, like, you could come in, come out, never have a career. You know what I mean? And that idea of being a little fish in a big pond. Um, But I did feel like when I turned when I turned on the gas at Eastman, which is, like, my second semester, I kind of got acclimated and everything. I started to see some more success. And- what I realized was like, it really is just, do you put in the the work and are you absorbing what's around you? Are you staying curious? Um, and I'm certainly not the, out of the people that I was in school with, I am not even close to the best musician in that class, which is such a relative and subjective thing, but I felt like I put everything together. Well, from a career and musical standpoint. And I felt like I could overlay these things Whereas some people were so incredible on the marimba and I could never aspire to be that level, but they would never be able to do a podcast like this and, and speak in a certain way or, or create thumbnails for a video. Like it, it, the, it ranges the gamut, you know, it runs the gamut on all this stuff. And um, it allowed me to be comfortable with who I am because I know that I'll never, ever be at a certain level for a lot of things. There's always someone better than you at everything. So all that
0: you can be better at is what pieces of that you have in you. You, you mentioned about the, um, the environment being this inspiring and intimidating, like both of these things at the same time. And yeah. you, I, I think, as you said, second semester, you adjusted to it. And then you, you like realize, okay, yeah. I have a place. Yeah. Yeah, because I came into there thinking
1: and I don't know what the true stat on this was. There were three people in my master's class, you know, both people that, you know, I'll always consider like dear friends. We went through this together, you know, this kind of thing. And I always came into the experience at Eastman thinking that I was the third of three because when, you know, Burritt came out and said that about my audition to me and my dad, I was like, I'm, I must've gotten let in, uh, out of like being him feeling bad for me or, I certainly knew, even if whatever the case was with that, that I was the underdog because I just didn't – I wasn't in a program before that. Like, capital is a very um, functional program in the sense that it sets you up in a lot Mm. of ways to be diverse with what you can do, but it's not like a school that's going to feed you into Eastman. You know, that's not what it's there for. And so I I always felt like I was behind, felt like the underdog. And I kind of like that. I kind of—that's what drives me a little bit—is to feel that way. Um, But I always went through my experience at Eastman feeling like I'm three of three, you know, and uh, and so I have to work extra hard. And I feel like I came out of there mentally a little jacked up because it's such a hard place. That's kind of where a lot of that started. I mean, Eastman was was more than anybody. Like I should have I should have been there for three years, not two. (laughs) Two years was was a lot, but to, to cram it all in.
0: At what point does thinking about and deciding to attempt on a solo percussion career come into your head? So that was, start, that started at Capitol actually,
1: okay. because the only reason I would have gone to Eastman in the first place was that I had a reason to spend that amount of money, you know, like, sure. so uh, when, when Colin Curry came to, to Capitol, gave, he did a residency for a week. This was the whole, I've talked about this ad nauseum to, to a lot of people. And if people listening have heard this before, I do apologize, but the whole Colin Curry experience, he gave two recitals he at, at Capitol, he gave a master class at Capitol, and then he gave um two concerto performances with the Columbus Symphony that weekend. So it was this whole big thing that we did. I just at the time I didn't even know what it meant to play a concerto. This is gonna sound silly, but mm-hmm. like I I was in music history classes and stuff, and I was just like the I was the kind of student that I was getting an A, but I wasn't digesting any information, you know? Sure. So like, if you told me what a violin concerto was, I could have said like, maybe some definition in my head of like, it's a violin soloist in front of an orchestra. I didn't know what that meant. And I particularly didn't know what it meant as a percussionist. So when I saw him play this concerto with the, with the symphony, I was like, whoa, I didn't know this existed. And this guy's making a living, traveling the world doing this. So immediately I was like, I'm gonna do that. That's what I have to do <laughs> in some way. And uh, I talked to him afterwards. Uh, And he was very encouraging and everything like that. And then the next year I went to, or two years later, I went to Eastman and he, he did a residency my first semester at Eastman. It's just like all these touch points with Colin and always asking him stuff. And then he came and a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, he rented out my basement as a studio and he came to my house and practiced here uh, when he was playing a concerto in town and we hung out and we went out that night. It was like, you know, these things you can't imagine when you're you know, six, seven years ago, just meeting this guy. But Colin was the reason I I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's funny. Like that idea never really wavered. It wasn't like I got a year into it and I was discouraged. Like, ah, am I going to do this? It was, I have to do this. And that's why I decided to go to Eastman because it seemed like the most sensible place. It made the most sense to go there to try to be a soloist, I guess.
0: Yeah. No, it makes sense. Were you even at Eastman, you know, when you're kind of wrapping up and, you're, and you've been making connections over the last few years because of all mm-hmm. the summer stuff you're doing. Um, are you starting to put together some of the business side to, to try to make that work?
1: I started doing that at Eastman at some point. My first website happened when I was a senior at Capital, but it was really just like an experiment to get something up there and to see it uh, mm-hmm. like living somewhere. And then Eastman has this program called the Arts Leadership Program, and I was really interested in this when I got there. And it's one of those things where, you know, you, you do a couple classes and you have to get up to, I think, six credits of arts leadership classes on the side to then get the certificate. And you have to obviously be admitted to the program. You have to write an essay or do an interview, whatever. And so I was really nervous at the beginning of my time at Eastman, like, I have to get into this program. This feels uh, very crucial to me. So I, I ended up getting in, I did the classes, but it's like anything else, um, it just what, what work do you want to put in? Like you could get that certificate and it, you could never apply those skills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when I was in school, I was always like futzing around on my website and, um, asking, just trying to ask people like, how do you get a gig? How do you book a gig? Oh, you need a press kit. You need a one sheet. You need this and that. And so I started to put all those things together in my head and I got together with a designer and I did a brand thing, which still is existing now. It's all going to change sometime soon, but yeah, it was, it, again, it was back to kind of curiosity of trying to figure out how this all worked behind the scenes. Cause it's a, it's a strange business and everything's wrapped up in managers and booking agents and stuff like this. And it doesn't have to be, but those people keep those materials close to their chest and you don't really get to see them often and see how they work. So I started thinking about that. And then I booked my first tour before I left school. And I did that tour like I graduated in August, or, or what, is, what is it, May that you graduate? And then I my first tour was in like September of that year. So I did that, and I was on the road. Yeah, pretty quickly, I would say. And look, guys like uh, Drew Tucker and Ooh. Todd Meehan, and I'm trying to think if there was, if I forget anybody's name, I'm sorry, obviously Colin. I was talking to these guys a lot because Todd had really just started doing liquid drum, hardcore, Ooh. thinking about entrepreneurial stuff. And, uh, Drew was doing all the, it's not a xylophone. And that was pretty early days of when most people were not using social for, for percussion. Like I was like early adopter in that, in that category, Josh Jones was doing some stuff, I think, but not at the level that he is now. And so uh, Rob Knopper was big. This was like the Rob Knopper era of, Mm -hmm. of social, I think. Yeah. So we were all like, we were all having like conversations on the side and talking about what works and what doesn't. And I really saw those guys as like mentors to me.
0: You know, in those that first set of gigs, where where were they, and what were had, like what kinds of stuff did you realize about either finances or if it was worthwhile for you to even try to do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first gigs
1: that uh, September October were like it was like the Tennessee and Kentucky run, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went down and I did my my big connection with all of that. I believe was Andy Harnsberger at Lee, I, I, you know, ESM grad like. So I went down with with him, and that might have been my first gig, or maybe Southern Adventist when when Richard Henson was was uh, doing that. So I did SAU, I did Lee, I did Campbellsville Mm -hmm. uh, with Chad, and that might have been more of a one off. I can't remember if that was on the same tour, but it was like a a one week, two week period of time where I did these gigs, and I don't know what I I probably made like the at the most three or five hundred bucks on a show at some point on that gig uh, or on that tour. And yeah, like by the end of it, when you've like eaten all the food on the road, you've – the gas money, you're like, damn, I didn't make any money. (laughs) And right before that, I remember going like, okay, I'm going to go on the road now. And then I realized like, oh, I don't own any symbols. (laughs) And I just signed a deal with Sabian, so I ordered like $2,500 worth of symbols right away because when I started thinking about it and taking it to its conclusion, I was like, if I get to a school – and they don't have what I need, what do I do? Right. It's like, oh shoot. So I bought every piece of accessory gear I needed besides marimba and vibraphone at the same time. So I dropped like 10K on a credit card. It was so silly, Mm. but
0: it's just kind of what I had to do, I guess right well it's i mean it's an investment in your future so it's it, right which which sometimes can be a tough sell <laughs> you know when you're young or particularly if you're an undergrad sometimes you're like why do i need all these mounts i'm like well you're gonna need them and if you buy them all and take care of them you'll have them for a long long time
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you're like i'm like okay i'm gonna get in the car i'm gonna i'm gonna do three shows I, all of them you know Sixteen-hour days, playing three recitals, and that's going to pay for uh, my three cymbals.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Let alone the vibraphone. Right, right, yeah. No, that's Ugh. that's good. But I mean, it sounds like maybe the learning thing, if anything, from that is not is not the money part. Maybe it's just like, okay, I have a way. I know a way I can do this, and I, I'll I'm going to add to my skill sets and and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think, I think that's right. Like the the beginning of this stuff, I always talk about this too, is like, there is no internship for soloists that doesn't exist. And so it's essentially your first gigs are your internship and you just have to, the hard part about it is that you're doing it all yourself. And particularly with percussion, when you're bringing a lot of gear, like my car was loaded out. And what I would do is I would get to a hotel and I'm not leaving that stuff in my car because it's not only taking up my trunk, but my backs and front seats I unloaded everything into my hotel room, you know, on the on the cart and then I would bring it back out to my car. When you're doing all that physical work and your your mind is like you're so concerned about is this show going to work and at the time I was doing electronic stuff like a like a silly boy, you know, like doing some real dumb stuff. You you have to be able to get out like the third person thing and look at yourself and say like how is this going? What am I learning? Instead of just being like holy crap the whole time is this going you know you can't be in um well, I don't know fear mode the whole time you have to be able to absorb and learn because if you're not then you're not really getting anything from those gigs because you're certainly not making any money from it so yeah you're right like the, what do you take away from those i guess you take away how this all works and the best way to do it you don't really know what works until something goes wrong you don't really know what you need to write into a contract until something goes wrong so the first like three, four years of doing that, well, really the whole time I was out on the road was like, you get somewhere, someone does something that feels to you like it's really stupid and it sucks. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I just got to go on my contract. One time we were playing a gig. I was playing a gig with a, one of the groups that I w- that was a part of. And they, we were doing like our rehearsal or our sound check and they come in and like, we need that vibraphone. And we're like, what? And we're like, this is our only time to rehearse. They're like, well, sorry, but we need that vibraphone. It was like, okay. So now in the contract is like, whatever instruments I get from you, you don't get them when I need them. You know, that's how obvious does that seem? (laughs) But stuff like that happens at every gig, and you're like, wow. um, You gotta you gotta go through the ringer before you can. I don't know, learn those things, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's like art was like artist will maintain instrument for entirety of time. (laughs) So whatever is the legalese way of saying that or something. And who knows what it is? Like,
1: because right. when you write these contracts, you're like, these are not legal contracts. Right. You're just putting stuff out on a PDF. <laughs> that always cracks me up is like trying to make when I'm writing my contracts, trying to make it sound all fancy. It's like, oh, it's on my letterhead. Who cares? Right. <laughs> <laughs> none of this is none of this is really legally binding.
0: Right, right. Ugh. No, that's true. Cameron, I finished up with a segment called "Random Ask Questions." Okay. All right. Uh, first question is: an issue in percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Oh my god! I thought these were going to be like
1: uh, I thought these are going to be like red or blue boxers or briefs. No,
0: we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> no,
1: a no, this that's a that's an. Can you ask that one more time so I can? Process, <laughs>
0: yeah. The um, issue, either in percussion education or percussion performance, that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts.
1: There's a lack in teaching, in my opinion, of of teaching students how to truly be art- artistic. I think so much uh, teaching that happens, even at the collegiate level, is notes and rhythms and just just achieving whatever. Th- the lowest common denominator, essentially, as opposed to pushing students to a place of true artistry and something that could compete with another instrumentalist. That's not a, not percussion. I will not get into why I think that is, but I think that is, that is my answer.
0: (laughs) Okay. So, all right. So I won't follow up with that. When you, when you get to those conversations, what, what is your way to say, to get a student to the next, to that step of thinking in that way? One, one really like easy logistical thing is
1: like, give them a piece of music that they love that that's number one, like find, find an investment for your student. And then I kind of have to just kind of go there, which is, I just think a lot of, a lot of people that are teaching students haven't played enough gigs themselves and haven't had to think in the way of beyond just teaching these certain things, as opposed to actually putting it in practice publicly and understanding what works and what's compelling that that's a really big problem for me. That kind of indicts a lot of people. And I, I know it's a really broad stroke, and I'm I really I'm sorry about that. There's a case-by-case basis for all of this, sure. but there's an unlocking moment in my mind in every student's musical journey. And I'm having this with two of my students right now. One is playing that Oatomo arrangement of Over the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful piece for teaching someone how to get out of the box. The last piece the kid played was Astral Dance. And he was notes and rhythms, you know? Mm-hmm. And it just, it just goes and it plays itself. And we are doing some stuff with Over the Rainbow. Like, I, I, get, I get chills. I get emotional in his lessons because he does stuff. And I'm like, I can't believe you're doing this. And he goes, he goes I can't believe I'm doing this either. And I'm like, and I said, everybody has a moment in their life where, where something happens and the musicianship clicks and you start understanding what's artistic and compelling. And I, I feel like I had that moment at some point when I was at Eastman where Burritt would say you get to this point. I mean, it might've been with Mirage with me, which is a really interesting piece oh, to feel I love that, about. that piece. Yeah. And you're like, I get it. You know, music, it's all about drama and tension and release and all of this stuff. And how do I, how do I get there? Um, and rules don't matter. Nothing matters except for the music on stage and how it communicates. But yeah, from the teacher's point of view, you, you just, you have to have kind of gone through a lot of that yourself on stage and, and, You know, so, so anyways, I just think, um, I just think there's a lot of like the Texas thing. Do you know what I mean? Where Mm -hmm. you're going through the program, you're doing the all state etudes and all this, but it's so cookie cutter. I hate that stuff. So Mm -hmm. find a a piece your student loves and figure out how to make it the most compelling thing ever and give them something that's a little easier than like, than they can handle and have them be
0: successful at it. Yes. Uh, That's a big one. I love that it was Mirage or that was a piece that was there because I, that's like my favorite of that style uh-huh. for for a lot of the reasons you say I've, pu- I've pulled that out every so often. Cause I, I don't love a lot of that. I mean, I like a lot of that music, but it's not stuff that I'm like compelled to, but for some reason, I think someone, a student of mine, I had played that and they're like, Oh, I was hearing like Tom and Jerry. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And I'm like, all right, I got that because it's now I think of it more of almost being um, incidental music in some way. Yeah, and and so it's like, okay, that's a different kind of character and a way of playing. So I don't know if that if that was your experience. That's where like it, it connect, connected with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's part
1: of it too. What you're saying is like finding a story to tell in your music, even if there's no story. I mean, Mirage to me, there's no story. It, right. Yeah. But <laughs> but like the ones, dig it, um like you can call that the March section, you know, think of it as a March or whatever else, the Tom and Jerry, um, Colin Curry had me do that in a master class when I played for him. When he, when I first saw him, he was like one word, what is this section? And I was like, raindrops, you know what I mean? Like that, that's a really like narrative is a powerful thing for I'm pulling some of that music off.
0: All right. Next question. Now we'll get into the, the, the types of questions you kind of mentioned, but (laughs) has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I don't. I don't think I'm worthy of someone making an impression. You know what I mean? If you're if you're gonna get an
1: impression made of you, I think you got to be of a certain level. I, that ain't me. But I, I don't know that I've ever had anybody nail an uh try try an impression of me. I've never seen it unless they're making fun of me behind my back, which I would completely deserve that.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> I would almost encourage it sometimes. You know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I guess the only people in my life that would probably do that now would be like students. You know? Oh yeah. So, I'm sure there's something back there
0: that that would be kind of
1: funny. Yeah,
0: fair enough. All right, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own?
1: That could mean so many things. It can, yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to think if I have any like really over the top, uh, like jack, like suit jackets or something, or like. Mm god can i can i phone a friend can i ask my wife i mean geez she's probably the one that would have the best answer for that because yeah. all i wear are black t-shirts and skinny jeans and boots that's like <laughs> that i'm not kidding like the only thing i wear now because it's one thing i've been thinking about is like uh efficiency and not having to think about too many things so i don't even yeah. think about what i wear anymore black i have i've 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 maybe worn the same pair of jeans for the last year <laughs> I, I wash them i yeah, wash them yeah, but yeah no, I, I don't know. Maybe the most over the top. I have this pair of like plaid pants uh-huh. uh, that I bought one time thinking I was like going to wear them. Uh, they're very seasonal. They're very fall colored. Like it's like a pumpkin spice latte, but on your legs. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've never worn them because every time oh. I put them on, I'm like, nah, I don't know about this. So maybe I'll wear them at PASIC. Ooh, that'd be nice. Maybe That's I'll like see it. Or <laughs> This week. <laughs> it is fall or in lessons this week. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, that would be, that would be funny. There's got to be something worse than that, but I yeah. just can't think of it because I black tea every day. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It would be hilarious though if you walked in in that and your students are like, uh, "Are you okay, Cameron?" Yeah, like, <laughs> they they would probably ask that. <laughs> oh man, I got you. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, this is not related to the, the your background, but what's your biggest kitchen mess up?
1: I, I don't think I have one because I I am the only thing I cook in my kitchen. I make eggs. Oh, here, here's one thing that I hate when I when I crack the yolk, when I break the yolk, you know, and uh-huh. when I'm flipping my eggs, all I eat, all I make in the kitchen are eggs. And wow, is that it? Is that all I make? <laughs> 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 I, I like. I, I mean, I pull, I take the smoked salmon out of the package and I put it in a plastic bag. <laughs> you okay but like i'll make myself breakfast and then my wife will just like cook a bunch of chicken and i'll just Mm -hmm. heat it up in the microwave i used to want to cook and then i just realized there's no time so dang yeah that's 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 out there now (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you this like i can't i don't even know i've never grilled anything i've never used a grill like Mm -hmm. a cast iron skillet nope not me so (laughs) that's really bad but Let's just say I put my e- effort into things selectively. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Uh, oh, also that yeah. question from before about musicianship. I just remembered. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to tell tell people out there if you want to see what I consider to be some of the most dramatic musicianship, there's a video of Kai Strobel playing Prelude Number no. One by Emmanuel Sejourne. It's an old video in the uh, wherever he studied in Linz in Austria and there's a nasty mic hum in the background going on, that video, if you want to see dramatic music making, just show that to yourself and your students. I make every student that I have watch that video of Kai because it's so compelling to me. Um, yeah, and then it, the most compelling part of it is if you see the music on the page and understand he doesn't care what is on that page rhythmically. He just does what the music needs. Oh, That's, that's a great teachable moment.
0: Anyways. Awesome, awesome. No, that's great, that's great. Okay, what's a great movie, and what's a terrible movie? You got the hard question. see, you have the you have the um,
1: the questions of things that normal people and, and like <laughs> that like because I, 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 this is something about me. I, I watch a lot of movies and I can't remember any of the movies I watch. <laughs> I don't know if this is yeah. something that's wrong, but um favorite a favorite movie, you know, one that I kept coming back to for a really long time, which is not even a good movie is Shooter with Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> like, there, uh, sometimes I get this bug of a certain movie. One, uh, The Longest Yard was another one. When oh. I was growing up, I would watch in the, the new edition with the, with Adam Sandler, but, because oh. I think there, it was remade, right? Yeah, that's a remake. Um, I would watch that movie like every single day. Um, there was a phase of Drumline the movie, and then uh-huh. there was, a, when I was really, really young, and then there was a phase of, of Shooter by Mark Wahlberg, man. <laughs> Um, but I would say like, I've seen maybe some good ones recently. I just, I can't remember any of the titles. I love the dark Knight rises though. Mm, Okay. Oh, that's a great one. Uh, And then a bad movie. Oh, I don't know. I usually just turn them off. Mm. I saw this one with. Do you know Nikolai Koster, Walt, uh, what's his name? Well, the, I, yeah, he
0: was, yeah, I know. He was on, was he like Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones. Like yeah, yeah. But he did this movie, this this movie about like
1: Egyptian gods or something. And, okay. and it was the the hokiest thing I have ever seen in my life. I can't even remember the title, yeah. but I remember. And we, it was one of those where it was so bad, but we're like, you know what? We watched half of it. Let's just get through this thing. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's power through. Power through. <laughs> um, that one was, that one was pretty abysmal. That's awesome. (laughs) Gotcha. What about a uh, favorite book? Yeah, I get, you're, you're killing me. The last book I, uh, well, I can't, the last book I read was a, probably a textbook. Mm. Like no joke. I, that's one part of my life. I've actually recently bought some books and I've Mm -hmm. said, when I level out my responsibilities and things, I'm going to start reading because, yeah, I just don't read books. It's terrible. Okay. The movies, the books, the food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. I'm a shell of a, I'm a shell of a person right now. <laughs> I guess that's what this tells
0: you. Let me ask Cameron's husk another question. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, uh, this uh, this may be a quick answer. Do you have a sports fandom? Oh yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm a big MMA fan. Okay. So I grew up with MMA, um, watching it since like probably 2005 with my dad. So I I follow the UFC religiously. I fell off there for some years when I was in school, but I basically watch every UFC event. That's like my guilty pleasure. And then Mm. I actually grew up playing lacrosse. I was a big fan of that in in school. And then that's one that I've never gotten back into. I was like a college lacrosse junkie you know watching all the all the games but yeah at this point it's just ufc no no football basketball none of that
0: stuff okay do you have a favorite fighter or fighters
1: yeah there's a bunch i mean a lot of them are retired now like my all-time favorite fighter is george saint pierre mm. um but habib nirmegam habib uh i love him you know he recently retired islam makachev won the belt last night which is crazy it's his protege and all this stuff but uh you know, for a while, Conor McGregor is fun to watch, but he's a real piece of piece of crap now. So, yeah, yeah. still, it's, it's like a train wreck. You got to keep watching. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. yeah have you ever done? Have you uh, studied any of that stuff?
1: Not yet. A- OK, that's a big that's another thing. Like physically, I want to get into doing some BJJ and some uh, and boxing. Those are two okay. things I want to get into. OK, Awesome. yeah. All
0: right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Uh, Australia. Hmm.
1: Yeah. My, my wife did her student teaching in Australia. Oh wow. And yeah. What is crazy. her field by
0: the way, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Well, so she, she went into music. Um, hmm. she was a music ad major. She's a, a band director at a middle school and ended up leaving that, uh, a few years ago. And she's kind of gotten into more like corporate stuff, working for a, a company that uh, deals with software for healthcare companies and stuff like this. So, um, I think she's happy about it, you know, but like at the same time, she was always so good at working with kids that I think there's part of that maybe that she still misses and and everything. So, um, but yeah, just, she was, she was a musician, you know, she's very artsy. She's an incredible uh, painter, like visual artist, Mm. incredible. So what was her instrument? So she was, uh, she, her primary was saxophone, but she was like a woodwind person, you know, she could play clarinet flute. Um, but she ended up going into
0: it for sax. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah so how did that come up what was your
0: question oh i was asking where you because she's student taught in australia that's right australia mm-hmm.
1: so she's student taught out there and she started this program at Capital when she was a student there to be able to make it happen mm-hmm. um and some other students have done that since then but she went to australia she visited new zealand when she was there she always talked about how amazing it was i'm sure i'm sure it was you know But we've never been able to go internationally anywhere together which is a mm-hmm. real shame like That's, that's gotta be fixed. And we want to go to Scotland because, and do a kind of a European tour, but Scotland, she, she loves Scotch whiskey. Um, Mm. We we got into that together. And so we want to go on a, you know, a tour of different distilleries there. And yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. So now related to the last comment, can you give me a, your favorite of your favorite whiskey that like most people have heard of and then one that's like, so obscure that you may have made it up right on spot.
1: Yeah, let me turn around real quick and look. Um, yeah. Okay. okay.
0: Yes. So the one that people have probably heard of, you know, like when you go to a Chili's and they're like, "Do you have oh. this?" and they have it, and you're like, "Okay, fine. That'll that'll be fine."
1: Yeah. So some of the most. Uh, here's what i would say elijah craig barrel proof not not regular elijah craig small batch but okay. barrel proof for those listening that means it, it's not been cut with any water the proof when it comes out of the barrel is usually extremely high yeah, and yeah. so an elijah craig barrel proof is going to be between 120 140 proof mm-hmm. um that because it's age stated at 12 years and it's like 60 bucks 70 bucks for a bottle which for a lot of people sounds like a lot of money that's actually not when you multiply that out that's 25 pours at a bar like that's really cheap um you're just buying it all at once that's how i get myself that's how i convince myself to (laughs) spend all this money right elijah craig barrel proof to me if you're gonna go in that price range that's like the ultimate great deal bottle and then if you're gonna go a little lower than that russell's reserve single barrel Mm -hmm. wild turkey 101 even people think that that's like a party whiskey it's really a good whiskey Mm -hmm. um and then unbelievably obscure bottle yeah. Uh, there's a bottle called King of Kentucky. Uh-huh. And it's generally about $2,000 sec- like on the secondary market, which yeah. is the only place you're ever really going to find it because it's so limited. Yeah. That to me is like the ultimate whiskey still being produced today. The mm. stuff fr- from the 70s, 80s, 90s, that stuff is even better in some ways, but
0: you know, it's just it's long gone. Sure. So, gotcha. yeah. Where is that a the King of Kentucky is that is that the name of the company or is that like somebody's like small little batch from something else?
1: Yeah, that's the name of the bottle <clears throat> and the, the line the company is Brown Foreman which is the parent company to Jack Daniels Woodford and right. uh, uh, well, Old Forester. jeez so right. they they handle all of those companies and then this one doesn't have a designation but of being from one of those three subsidiaries so it's just a, considered a brown foreman product. Um, but yeah, King of Kentucky, usually per year, a couple thousand bottles are released, you know, and 250 is retail price, but people know the distributors and know this and that. So it just, it gets flipped for about two grand a piece. Gotcha. Um, but I'll tell you what, if you, if you believe, if you, if you've developed enough of a palette to kind of differentiate some of these whiskeys, I always said, there's no way anything's worth two grand like that. There's absolutely no way that a consumable object could be worth that. And then you taste it and you're like, Dang it. Like, that's
0: it's, a bargain.
1: Dude. It, it is. I mean, if it's an absurd amount of money to pay for something like that. Yeah. But there are bottles that go for 30, 50K. I mean, that's, that's unreal yeah. <laughs> to, to pay a salary for a bottle. But some of those one, once in a lifetime things, you get one, you save it for a special occasion. It makes sense. And King of Kentucky is, in my mind, the best currently produced whiskey on the market.
0: So, awesome. Anyways. All right. A couple more. <laughs> strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you?
1: Mm. There's a really funny one that happened when I was playing at Southern Adventist, which was, I think, actually my first gig ever on the road. And it was my electronics cut out. And I had this like spotlight in my eyes on stage. And there was a guy, which was rare at the time for me to get like a sound tech at the board in the back. And I was playing Buttonwood is what it was by uh, Evan Chapman, and I couldn't see because the spotlight was in my eyes. So I squinted real hard and I looked really angry. And this is like on this video. And I look like I am about to scream at the sound tech and I'm not, I'm just trying to like look back there and be like, like, can you hit the button, you know, or something like, can you fix this? It made the rest of the recital feel really, really uncomfortable because the audience thought that I was like ready to kill this guy. (laughs) And I, it was totally not my intention. Um, And then another one is like the very first lick of Mirage. Mm -hmm. I played it at, uh, central Florida, UCF. And I remember like the first time I played my right hand, it went underneath the marimba cord on the mm-hmm. accidentals. Yeah. That was like, it was the <laughs> opening lick of the entire recital. I was like, Bleh, and it's gone. <laughs> so you got to restart at that point, you know, yeah.
0: Did yeah. you should have, you, you should have uh, just, um, bowed, walked off stage, walk back on start bowed, and then just i know it's bad it's bad so those are those stick out in my
1: mind you know yeah, no, that was, yeah. That was
0: good. all right uh last question cameron what one piece of art music movies books podcasts youtube clips theater visual anything has impacted you the most recently
1: This is the problem. This is actually kind of a problem with how much content there is out there. You digest so much of it and you don't input it. You know, I guess that clip that I was talking about earlier, because it's all I can think of right now of, of that runner, that guy that was talking about here, the three things you need to protect, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or do, um, that clip, which was just on some random Instagram page, that was maybe the most recent, like two days ago, impactful thing that's happened, but I would have to really sit and think about that
0: is there a particular reason why that why that hit you in the mm. way yeah because
1: i think anything that's as, that's really relevant to you in that moment is going to hit you the hardest you know and so this is something i've been dealing with now and recognizing about myself personally that's a that's a flaw for me that i need to deal with so that's i think you know relevance is the big factor <laughs>
0: Wow. What a lot of fun that was talking to Cameron. I again congratulate him on his performance and hope he continues to put out great work on the teaching, performing, and bourboning tracks. Made that word up. Thanks again, Cameron. This week's rave is the 2023 PBS American Experience film, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space now streaming on PBS and other locations, and written and directed by Tracy Heather Strain. Like many nerds of my age, I get a great deal of joy watching and enjoying the content on PBS, and this was no different. It was also enjoyable because it was only a few years ago when I read Hurston's most famous novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. It seemed like a good time to learn more about her life and work. What I was honestly shocked by from watching this documentary was the way that the film did not spend a lot of time talking about her most famous writings, and instead focused on what was, at the time, groundbreaking anthropological research on the lives of rural black Americans in the South, along with documenting the lives of folks in the Caribbean in the early 20th century, and the ways that Hurston dealt with a lot of blowback from her research the film takes time to lay the groundwork for what made Hurston's research so important and unusual at the time. Anthropological and ethnographic research from much of human history prior to the 20th century started from a viewpoint of white male cultural superiority, which factored not only into what humans studied other humans, but who was worthy of studying. Typically, those that were studied came from cultures completely disconnected from anything European. Researching a population with seriousness, care, and accuracy required a great deal of time and money, along with an ability to acquire the trust from those that you study. What made Hurston's work so groundbreaking is that she grew up in rural Florida and, after studying in New York at Barnard College during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, she did her ethnographic research among people she truly knew, and the work was tremendous. Part of the greatness of this documentary is the inclusion of a lot of original audio and video footage that Hurston shot during her time there. She allowed folks to tell their own stories, which would then inform both her research and her successful works of fiction and nonfiction later. Another element, among many others, is the discussion of the entrenched structural racism that was and continues to be a part of academia. Her work, while groundbreaking, wasn't given the same kudos that the work by her white male colleagues, including her college mentor, Franz Boas, were getting. And she was kept out of influential positions in academia and elsewhere by many in that power structure throughout her life. It's interesting to have watched this while I was preparing part of my lecture for my music history class, on the life of 18th century composer and performer Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier du Saint George, the first black performer of note from that time period who existed in these hallowed court spaces during the time of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Joseph Haydn, but was denied major posts in Paris due to his race. In any case, this is a tremendous documentary film that's well worth your time. Seek out and watch. Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space you will enjoy and that's our show subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating you can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast the episodes the show is also on SoundCloud Stitcher Spotify and many other podcast locations if you're on Facebook like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast you can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com and I'll catch you next week for the first of our new conversations with folks from 2023. Until then.